Hi, and welcome back to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. Today, we're sharing with you our conversation with Dr. Gosha Trinker. Gosha is Experimental Director of Open Targets and is also in the minority as a female group leader on the Welcome Genome Campus. It was so lovely to hear about her experiences having fantastic, strong female role models and how she's trying to be that for the next generation, while also performing incredible science through genome-wide association studies and linking them to many immune diseases. I feel like I definitely found a role model through speaking to Gosha, and I really hope that you do too. telling us a little bit about kind of your beginnings in science like when you first started getting interested in science oh my goodness the beginnings Uh, for a long time I think up until I was somewhere around 17 or 18 I thought I would do literature I was certain I would uh, be surrounded by books for the rest of my life and so yeah I thought I would go and study um somehow some you know some something related to books or literature or, or something um I think it was biology lessons and suddenly we started covering like molecular biology and uh, inheritance and genetics and that got me really really interested and I really completely suddenly completely refocused from paying a lot of attention to um, the literature classes. I continue paying attention to them because I still really love books, <laughs> but I started paying a lot of attention to chemistry and biology. Um, and I think at that point I met uh, um, a girl who just got into this uh, university in Krakow, where I'm from and where I was living at the time. And she told me that she got into the studies um, which are called biotechnology, biochemistry and biophysics. So it was all about molecular biology. And I thought that really sounded fascinating. And I think in some way uh, I got really interested and, and thought, OK, I would like to try and get into the yeah. same university and, and, and follow that. And uh, yeah, I guess that got me um, really interested in molecular biology. Cool. Did you uh, always sort of think you'd go, was going to university always your next step? Like whether it was going to be literature or science? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. (laughs) Interestingly enough, um, it didn't resonate very well with my dad, especially. Um, My dad thought, um, I mean, okay, bear in mind, we're like communistic Poland, okay? Yeah, Um, yeah. So I grew up in a communistic Poland where if you just had a job, basic skills, that was really valuable, right? So my dad doesn't have university background, um, doesn't have a degree, uh, neither does my mom. In, in gen- actually, in fact, my, my whole family doesn't have sort of that uh, track uh, with higher education. So it was... Um, difficult for him to understand why would I want to go into university why don't I just get a job and you know get going with my life yeah yeah and sorry I was just gonna say did you have teachers that pushed for it then or like who sort of got that into your head if it wasn't coming from your family I don't know I was just curious I just I didn't think I want you know I didn't think I had a job (laughs) at hand that I wanted to do for the rest of my life and um and I just thought okay I just I want to go and you know well, actually read jobs, which also wouldn't be a real job to him <laughs> either if I was <laughs> just reading books. 
um yeah. yeah i i i knew that i wanted to that i didn't have anything specific at hand and i wanted to have a it wasn't that i wanted to have a degree i wanted to continue developing and learning what it is that i wanted to do with my life yeah and probably learning the science also i imagine yeah and then you know science came across as like this is great you just learn yeah. the whole life right like you constantly yeah. learn something new you especially in our field in genomics like every day there's something new you learn and new technologies and so it's it's really yeah. rewarding yeah yeah um, and then so what was the university that you went to so i did my undergrad um i did uh in poland in krakow so that's okay. uh jagiellonian university uh Okay. I'll say proudly it's one of the oldest universities in uh, Europe as well and one of the oldest in in Poland. Uh, so it's a, the 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 whole city is very uh, it's a university city so it's it's got that um uh, Yeah, I'd love to go. Yeah. It, it's it's really beautiful. Um yeah, yeah but you, you definitely feel that sort of academic um feeling when you're there. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> So how did you broach that conversation with your parents when you decided that you wanted to go to university? Was there, do you remember like a sit down moment where you had to kind of talk to them and be like, no, I'm going to go and do this? <laughs> um, I had a few discussions with my dad for a long time. My mum was very supportive. Um, I grew up, my um, grandma, uh, my mum's mum, she was looking after uh, me and um, she was she was the person who really sparked the curiosity in me um, she would I mean she was a remarkable human being she would be always like you know just go and try it but one thing you have to do is ballroom dancing I've got two older brothers we all had to do ballroom <laughs> dancing I was like grandma I want to go and learn karate she's like fine but you have to do ballroom dancing so yeah no I was I did like you know air rifle shooting and ballroom dancing <laughs> so she was like okay you can you can do you know she, she really like um got that you know sense of curiosity and um the idea of go and try it and see if you like it but do the ball, ballroom dancing <laughs> has that has that proven useful in life Ballroom dancing. Not really. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> no, really. No. Um, so I had a. So my mom was very supportive, and and she's she's uh, very proud. She she um, she unfortunately she didn't go to the university, but she, um, if she had, she would. She thought she would do like biochemistry. They. This were. This was the subject she really enjoyed. So she, when I got to uni, she really enjoyed listening from me what I was uh, learning. And and even now, she's always asking me, "What are you doing?" and explain it to me. I don't understand anything, but it's really fascinating. <laughs> um, my dad, <laughs> bless him, in my PhD in which I did in medical population genetics. I remember every Christmas I would come home and we would do Christmas wishes and you wish each other, you know, all the best for the next year and so on. And he would go just like, please just don't clone people, okay? <laughs> that, that's not even remotely close to what I'm doing. I just couldn't understand at all. So it was, um, um, yeah, now he's... Uh, now he's uh, sort of more curious to hear what I'm doing. And I think he now understands I'm not cloning people. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that's such a funny, uh, funny warning. Yeah. 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 So when you went and did, so your master's was in biotechnology, biophysics and 
biochemistry. Biotechnology, biochemistry, okay. So when you went into that, you had a passion for genomics. Did you know sort of what you wanted to do with your PhD afterwards or how did that kind of come about? No, so I actually, I didn't have passion for genomics at that time. Um, It was, you know, molecular biology. um, And then the PhD in genetics uh, was um, very much an accident. Um, So I thought I saw myself uh, doing like plant biology, molecular biology in plants. Um, I was uh, researching uh, Arabidopsis thaliana and the impact of different lights on different photoreceptors and things like that. Um, and then in towards the last year of my undergrad, um, I sent out a bunch of emails looking for an internship for Erasmus uh, Exchange. And I sent a number to, um, to the Netherlands. And particularly, I learned that they had this celiac disease network. So they have groups that are working on uh, plants uh, to make them, you know, um, less toxic. So to have the um, less toxic form of uh, gluten in them. Then there's also Mm -hmm. a group that works in immunology and groups on genetics. And I just, like I said, you know, a a range of emails uh, to everybody. And only one person responded back, and that was uh, Siska. And she was like, yeah, sure, come over. And I've learned that actually we didn't have Erasmus (laughs) agreement, so I couldn't come on the Erasmus exchange. (laughs) I was like, I'm really sorry, but I can't come. She's like, you know what, come anyway. I'll uh, I'll cover your... uh, accommodation the rest you have to figure out how to support yourself oh that's amazing yeah and you just come over for wow. the for the summer holidays and um, um and so I did and then really to be honest up until the first day before I was going to the lab I didn't properly read what the lab is working on so then I'm like going to the lab and there's this guy who's going with me and he's showing me the the route to the lab from the student house and he starts telling me about what the group is working on and he's like they're doing this snip genotyping they found the association (laughs) and I'm like what are you talking about I don't understand (laughs) anything so then I've learned that the group was like working on human genetics and it was early days of genome-wide association studies and you know we started to have technologies for doing high throughput uh, genotyping Um, and the group was like, you know, half of it was statistical genetics, so <laughs> completely not <Yeah>. my background. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. I really, I, I um, yeah, it was uncomfortable at the beginning and it was a very steep learning curve, but um, I really loved the group, loved the science. And then Siska was like, well, actually, you should stay a bit longer. Your project's going really well. So I stand for a whole year. And then she was like, I think you should do PhD with us as well. So then I did PhD <laughs> with her. And, um, wow! Yeah, oh, that's so nice. That's amazing. So, I just, so yeah, just walked into genetics completely unconscious, really. Yeah. <laughs> so if a plant person had responded to your emails, you could be somewhere completely different. Absolutely, I could be working <laughs> on you know new plant sort of uh, types of of, of uh, wheat. Yeah. So you mentioned um, I don't I don't think I've ever heard anyone say out loud before. G was studies. G W A S studies. Yeah. G-W-A-S. Can you explain? Yeah, I don't know how people actually G-was. say them. was <laughs> That's how I've been saying it in my okay. head, was <laughs> Can you explain a little bit about what those studies are? Sure. So um, GWAS, so genome-wide association studies, what they do is uh, they perform 
association between genetic markers spread out throughout the whole genome, hence genome one wide. Um, and essentially they look at comparison between the frequencies of those genetic markers between groups of patients and groups of healthy individuals. And when you're finding these markers having different uh, frequencies between these two groups, that essentially tells you that there's a um, association between that particular marker and, for example, risk to the disease. So they're very important in um, helping us understand what's the you know disease biology and what's the genetics behind the biology behind the diseases. Okay, so you were using that specifically for celiac disease in your PhD. Yeah, so um, as I said, I was really lucky that I ended up in um, in a great group, but also at the times when genome-wide association studies were just picking up, um, and it as a um, human genetics as a field just realized that they are very powerful tool, and they are finally starting to help us find those. Loci, those those loci, those uh, regions of the genome that are associated with disease risk. So um, yeah, so um, remember when I said about like feeling uncomfortable about the st statistics and so on when I joined Cisco's group, I started off my PhD project uh, working on like individual variants, and then I vividly remember one day they just got a very big welcome grant. And she was just so excited. They were like, oh, we're going to genotype this like 5,000 individuals. And gosh, out, we've made the decision that you'll be the one who will be doing genotyping and analysis. <laughs> and I'm like, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Like, I have no computational expertise. I really can't do anything like that. She's like, you'll be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah so um like, and then it became yeah a really important part of my um phd um we performed a really large genome-wide association study and then following that was um another genotyping platform that was designed specifically to follow up on the signals associated to different immune diseases it was called immunochip because it was um aggregating individual signals from 12 different immune diseases. So we also genotype um, our different cohorts with, with that platform and perform analysis. And, and that really um, resulted in um, quite a lot of new associations and help us understand the disease biology a little bit better. That's cool. And then, so you did this massive computational GWAS that was was it one of the first GWAS? I guess you will have seen studies that where people were doing similar in other places. Yeah, so it was at the time where um, many groups were doing genome-wide association studies. Yeah, so the you know the 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 analytical pipelines were evolving, and there were tools that were available. And then following the the my PhD, I actually I've realized that I really enjoy that computational analysis, and I wanted to continue. Um, but even more so, I was really um, keen to understand better how those associations translate to biology. And so yeah. one of the big problems with genome-wide association studies is that you often land with these markers that are associated and they sit outside of the gene coding regions. So you actually don't know which are the genes that are um, relevant and also um, 
one of the big challenges is that you don't know which cell types actually are important for the disease. And the importance of yeah. knowing which cell types are relevant it comes from the fact that when you want to follow up any with any follow functional follow-up studies um, and you want to understand better the function of individual genes, you want to do them you want to do that in the uh, relevant cell type because gene expression regulation is very much context specific and cell type specific yeah. um so my uh postdoc actually i transitioned to uh boston and that was uh purely computational and it was around developing statistical methods that would take those gws associations and integrate them with different functional genomics data sets um, to help us understand which are the disease-relevant cell types. So, yeah, started off on the PhD like with, like, through. yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and then, I guess, so now you still, or do you do wet lab work? Still, I guess you're a group leader now, so you probably do less sort of of your own hands-on experiments, but yeah, did you? <laughs> so um, I don't do any wet lab work. I don't code myself <laughs> anymore sadly that's really <laughs> sad but I don't have the time for it I really admire yeah, those PIs yeah. who still code um, yeah. I tried in the first year and very quickly my group said we're better off when you're not here I really experiment <laughs> oh. you just don't have heads for cell culture oh, no. <laughs> that's funny yeah so then have you always wanted to run your own group was that always like a goal of yours mm, not really no <laughs> <laughs> you got to you start to see a pattern here um <laughs> i don't think it was a goal but again i i um i love science and um i thought well i was certain that i will continue in science because it's just something that really excites me um and there was an opportunity that there were there was a position um actually a big recruitment round at the sanger um, and I was, um, I've only done very short postdoc at the time. I'm, uh, I mean, I've uh, altogether I've done only a, just a little bit over two years of a postdoc, which is quite short period. Yeah. Um, and it just at that time I saw this opportunity and I thought, well, this is great. I'd love to be at a place such as um, Sanger. Um, and so yeah, so I applied, um, and. Um, was lucky enough or Sanger was crazy enough to offer me the position um and um and so I think I mean I'll, I'll be perfectly honest I feel like I just sort of stepped into it without really thinking carefully what this job is going to be all about and also <laughs> I was like well we're gonna run experimental part of the lab and computational so it took a, a while to figure out how to steer this boat and and yeah what it's what it, what it really means to uh, run a research group um, and it was quite challenging at the beginning um, because it's very exciting to start new things but also it takes time to get everything in place and and get things uh, you know to start but there's this like pressure and I think there's pressure to deliver, but also pressure from myself to see that we're capable of doing something. So it was really yeah. difficult for the first three years. And um, I was full of self-doubt if this is really the right thing and um, should I be doing this? Um, I'm not sure this is this is working or not. Um, but um, 
yeah i think around i think to be honest around year three i thought this is great i really love it i have fantastic people working with me and we're really doing our best and we're starting to see the light in the tunnel and when we started to have like first significant results that was yeah. so exciting i remember i was sitting in Mary's in the restaurant and the lab was based in Solston so like I don't know what is it a four minute walk and yeah. somebody <laughs> messaged me that they got this result and they um, uploaded a plot they slacked the plot and I was like oh my god I packed everything and started <laughs> running and came to the office like ah this is great this is working <laughs> that's amazing that felt really that good such a cool moment. yeah yeah <laughs> When you applied for that, was there anyone that you told that you were applying for it and like asked for advice about, or did you just go for it secretly? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I did. I told quite a few people, and um, I had, um, I had the ability to bounce the ideas off with my uh, fellow lab companions at the time, and so they, they were fantastic. Especially um, Shinni, who was a PhD student in the lab, she. Um, she was very critical and she helped me, you know, shape my ideas, um, more, um, and I've reached out to other colleagues also, um, who are already running the group. So they also helped me a little bit to make sure I would put together something sensible. It seems like you did. Yeah, I think so. Successfully <laughs> as you were. Yeah. <laughs> you must've been, I can't even imagine what that moment was like when you were offered it. Yeah, Is surreal. Um, <laughs> Completely. Yeah, I got an email saying that Mike uh, Stratton, the director of Sanger, would like to give me a call. I was like, all right. So then, yeah, <laughs> it was. I don't remember that because I had like a you know a horrible tiny little room in Boston, um, and then I had Mike on the phone saying that they were really they thought they found my talk very interesting and they would like to offer me the position and HR will be in touch. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it felt so real. So when you first started at Sanger, and I guess even now, there's obviously a bit of a lack of, there are amazing women group leaders at Sanger, but there's not near as many as there are men. Um, do, you set, do you see that changing and sort of how is that? I think, so I'm trying to see, you know, in, in numbers, I'm not sure it's changing in terms of senior leadership. But it's changing in culture and it's changing in a sense that there's discussion and there's acknowledgement, there's a problem and we need to be active about it and we yeah. need to do something to change it. And I think it really is important that we actively try and change it because having those role models is really important. The fact that you can look out there and, you know, you see at a conference that it's not only senior male speakers, right? There actually yeah. are excellent women speakers doing fantastic science is really important and motivating uh, for next generation of scientists. I mean, for sure, I know that there is this discussion and it's not only at Sanger, the discussion, the whole scientific community is now yeah. speaking about it. And not only women, we really need to do much better beyond women and, and uh, be better at uh, recognizing diversity in science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's definitely changing. And the fact that we're openly talking about it is, um, I mean, first and foremost important. And then we're starting to implement mm -hmm. actual changes and they are coming. I, I can see the changes, that's for sure. Did you find any unexpected challenges when you stepped into senior leadership? What was 
difficult for me to comprehend was that suddenly you find yourself in a room that is predominantly men. And that was mm -hmm. very unusual feeling because I didn't have that as a postdoc. I didn't have yeah. that as a PhD student because you're at those mm -hmm. stages, you're surrounded, you know, by equal numbers. And then yeah. suddenly you become faculty and you walk into a room and you're like, what's wrong? Am I in the right Let meeting? Where's everyone? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I still have those. Uh, you know, I, I got used to it a little bit. Um, but I still have that feeling that, you know, like there's, there's a big meeting and I see, especially now with Zoom, you know, people are calling in and I'm sitting there thinking, hmm, 10 people here. I'm the only woman. This isn't great. <laughs> but yeah, having yeah. said that, as I said, there's a lot of discussion and and, um, and I, I'm, I feel very supported um, at Sanger and at Open Targets. So don't think that's an issue and um, mm -hmm. I think also because there's more discussion about it also really importantly our men colleagues are becoming aware of that and they starting to recognize situations when there's unconscious bias and they yeah. you know pulling yeah. the brakes and that's great to see that you know suddenly you're like your colleagues are like uh, hang on a second I think this is exactly what Gosha just said <laughs> like, yeah. yes yeah, I wondered if there was any, do you ever feel any pressure is put on you? I guess if you're the only woman in the room, when that conversation comes up, do you ever feel like there's some pressure put on you, like all the men turn and ask you? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> 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 Having said that, uh, yeah, occasionally it does, but um, I don't think I feel the pressure. I think I feel more pressure myself because those situations are naturally a little bit more intimidating because when you're the only one then it might only be in your head as well but you just feel that yeah. difference and then that automatically becomes like an unconscious pressure that if you speak up you better make it meaningful and if you don't speak up then you're like you you might as well just not be there in that meeting so I think that's it's not that there's um, like an explicit bias, but I think at least for me, I find it a little bit more challenging just because the way my head works in those situations. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, because I, it almost puts you in a position where I can imagine myself feeling like I had to be an activist, I guess. I don't really know how to say that, like try to encourage more senior leadership that's women, regardless of whether I felt like that normally just being the only mm. woman in a room do you ever do you feel like that in any way like that because of your position as one of the few females in a leadership position that you really have to help push sometimes i do i mean the the i've had uh moments when you know i felt really tired with the situation or felt the burnout and and just felt mm -hmm. like i can't i don't want to do it anymore and then i think well you know if if we don't push for it, if we don't try harder, then it's just making it more difficult for the next generation. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's so rewarding when I hear, when somebody drops me, a person I don't know, a random, uh, you know, message on Twitter and, and, you know, acknowledges the fact that it's great to hear this and this. They really uh, thought that this helped them and, and that helped them. 
Um, also, I've been helping quite a few female postdocs and applying for faculty positions now, um, actually like four mm-hmm. at the moment. And I've just, this like moments like this, I'm like, oh yes, this is what we're gonna do. This is how we're preparing you for faculty <laughs> yeah. application. We're gonna, you're gonna get it. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's awesome. really, yeah. So the <laughs> moments like this are like, this is worth it. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll make it balance. Yeah. Yeah, I guess just turning up is all you need to do. I think you've got all this other stuff to do with being a group leader. To then put that on you as well is quite a lot of pressure. But I guess just showing up and being that woman that people can look to and think, you know what, I can do it. Someone else has already done it. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, as you say, the fact that, I, I mean, I've got I've got male role models, uh, but I think a big part mm-hmm. is the fact that I've had Siska and I've got... Uh, I'm really lucky to have a lot of really inspiring role models who are in uh, senior leadership positions and uh, running huge initiatives and they're very inspiring and I can call them anytime and they will help and give me feedback and and help brainstorm and the fact that um, they are there is really motivating and just as you say you know just the fact that somebody's out Mm -hmm. there and I know it's hard for them as well. And they'll message me and say, it's really hard at the moment. I'm like, okay, if you're finding it hard, that's okay if I find it hard as well. Do you think having strong female um, role models helped with that? Was Siska a role model for you? I think, well, in that time and the times after, she's really yeah. remarkable um, person and remarkable scientist. Um, and... Uh, yeah, she's she's always been a, a role model and um, she's very, uh, very supportive. I think, you know, you might get a sense mm-hmm. now that, uh, you know, her saying, oh, we think you're suitable person to run this GWAS, although like you have no credibility <laughs> that you will be able to deliver on it, really. She didn't say that. That was my brain. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, 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 she creates opportunities for people and, and she really... Um, she also seeks opportunities. She's a very curious person herself and um, she runs very cutting edge. Or she used to run, she no longer runs a research group because she's now the um, rector of the uh, university in Groningen. So she runs the university now. Um, but back then uh, she would always run a very uh, cutting edge science in the group. Um, so, you know, she wouldn't be shy of, new technologies, new approaches, no matter how uh, challenging they may seem. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely she, she's been uh, she's been very supportive and, and I've been reaching out to her and connecting with her um, throughout the years and just keeping her updated how things are and also checking in and getting her perspective on, on things. That's fun That's that so you can nice. still have that. Yeah. Do you take any aspects away from Siska's leadership style? and try and apply them to your own leadership? I think so. What I really liked about her was the fact that she would really trust um, trainees. So there would be Mm -hmm. some, uh, you know, quite uh, significant emails to send. And she felt like I should do that. And that was really, you know, empowering. It was very scary 
because you're suddenly emailing like all these big names in the field. Uh, but she would encourage people to do that. And um, I try and do the same with people in my group, make sure that they have the ownership of whatever task they are from experimental work all the way through to interactions with collaborators um, and um, you know, coming up with new ideas. If if you're able to convince me that your idea makes sense, I'll be more than I'll be fully supportive for for you to develop it. And I think I picked up a lot of that mentality um, from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. You got this senior group leader position, and then recently you became a director of Open Targets or an experimental lead on in Open Targets. Uh, which is pretty amazing. And first of all, I want to know, I guess we should ask what, have you explain what Open Targets is, but how do you manage to do both? Mm-hmm. Um, open Targets is um, a private-public partnership. Um, so a part of the consortium includes um, Sanger Institute, EBI, and three industry partners now, GSK, um, Sanofi, and uh, BMS. And our overarching goal is to systematically identify drug targets and prioritize drug targets from genomics data sets and using genetics. Yeah, how are you combining that with being a group leader? So um, my role as the director of experimental sciences of open targets is to um, oversee the experimental program, uh, which is quite a substantial component of open targets. And as part of that, um, my group has a number of research projects as well. So there are three different therapy areas in open targets, one of which is um, uh, immunity and inflammation. Uh, The other two are oncology and uh, neurodegeneration. And as a part of um, immunology and inflammation, we have quite a set of different projects there. Uh, And I'm mentioning that because because of that overlap it's not like i have two very separate um positions so quite a lot of Mm -hmm. um the work in the group the research program that we run in a group actually falls under open targets sort of responsibilities so that makes it um a little bit uh easier cool so i guess that feeds really nicely off the research that you're doing and like everything going from GWAS and discovering variants and then trying to functionally determine what those variants are doing. And now you actually have industry partners. It's, it all seems pretty linear there. Uh, yeah. How did you, so where, how did you get involved with open targets in the first place? So, yeah, I mean, I think shortly after I started at Sanga, um, there was a call from, for projects in open targets. Um, and we came up together with my postdoc, uh, Blagoje, uh, we came up with this idea of how we wanted to refine better which cell types are important in a range of different immune diseases using genetic information. So that really nicely fits into the overarching goal of open targets, which is leverage the genetics to inform of disease biology and prioritize targets. So we've put in a a proposal that actually got funded. And that was my first uh, engagement with open targets. And I started interacting with industry partners. And I quickly realized that I actually really like it. I really enjoy those interactions and um, getting a better sense of what drug 
discovery means and how these processes work and I guess um, understanding what it takes to go from like this um, basic science, academic science, to the next step, which is actually getting closer to uh, developing drugs for the diseases that uh, we're studying. So it felt like really a natural engagement. Um, and then I, I started engaging more and more. We got more projects. Um, and then the opportunity came up with um, the opening for the uh, experimental science director. And I applied for that. And again, they were crazy enough to offer me the position. Or smart enough. <laughs> That's and cool. I've been really, I've really enjoyed those interactions and uh, I have super supportive executive team. So together with Ian Dunham, um, David uh, Halkop and uh, Ellie McDowell, um, there's the four of us and we um, have different responsibilities. Uh, but the executive team is uh, super supportive and I'm learning a lot from them. And um, yeah, it's it's been really great. Yeah. I was wondering, do you do you still have imposter syndrome in some senses, or do you feel like you've sort of overcome that and feel really confident in your role at this point? I do still feel I have a imposter syndrome, and um, oh, I, I, yeah, I do feel it. Um, I try to evaluate myself better, be more realistic, because so um, if you have an environment where there are set goals you know, you, you've got those steps and you're just ticking off boxes or not. And if you're not, then, you know, you know, you have to act. You've got to do something else. There's a certain mission for a company that mm -hmm. needs to be achieved. In academia, it's not like that. You yeah. are surrounded by, um, you know, people who achieved a lot and you're surrounded by a lot of success. And also 90% of our job is rejection on papers, grants, you know, on your ideas. Um, and that can easily, well, I think that feeds into that imposter syndrome a lot. And so like academia builds that environment in which um, people are more susceptible to develop that imposter syndrome. Yeah. So what I try and do, um, and it's not working perfectly, but it's started to work a little bit better over the past few years, is to be more realistic about how I evaluate myself. So the imposter mm. syndrome really comes from yourself mm -hmm. comparing yourself to some, you know, super high bar. And that bar only gets higher and higher and higher. And what helps is to sit down and think about, is that really realistic? And if it... if I really think that I need to be that high. What do I need to do to achieve that? Um, so I think that kind of helped me a little bit in the past to recalibrate my own expectations a little bit. But um, there are low moments, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's nice to look back and reflect and just kind of reflect on your own experience instead of comparing it to other people. Um, what do you think your proudest achievement has been? In the <laughs> um you know, I think there's so many things. I, I'm, I'm the kind of a person who takes joy in small victories. Um, so uh, yeah. I love seeing how like my team advances and this can be anything from, you know, some important 
experimental breakthrough to get the method running i think that's that's a big achievement i get i i feel the pride of that person we had such situation last week and i just made my day i had a horrible day and just the fact i could see that one person feeling really proud that they finally got that thing working and they've been working on it for months that just felt like you know i i, I somehow felt like yes this is so good i can <laughs> i can feel your good vibe um and so i take um those kind of achievements seeing you know how people progress and how they move on to next career steps i've got a phd student who's now moving into uh his postdoc in a great lab in oxford um others moving on to start their own groups uh, that's really rewarding um I've, i really love to see mm -hmm. that but as i say also i just i really we we try and celebrate normally you know in non-covid times we would celebrate you know submission of a paper that's a big achievement let's go and yeah. um and celebrate that even before we know if it if it went out for review or not um yeah 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 addition of small victories yeah so um, i mean i think equally you know tight. it's like um it, the the victories are you we in science we're constantly like feeling uncomfortable uh you know like if you yeah. if you feel comfortable that means you're doing something wrong because that means you're just constantly within your comfort zone so you're you're not you've you're like exhausting your expertise and not really developing anything new so in order to keep on developing you have to feel uncomfortable you're going to do new methods you're gonna you know yeah. start new experiments you'll um i don't know try and understand something new so i think um this like just developing skills these yeah. are great achievements yeah so yeah, i don't have absolutely. one big one i just yeah. like sort of that's fine have a lot of yeah. small ones i like that yeah i think yeah that's such a nice way to put it i think you always think you'll get to a point and be like nope i've got this down now but actually you will constantly be learning in in that you've just got to kind of accept yeah. that state yeah of, i don't oh, know forever yeah <laughs> so like um last yeah. year just before covid i got a motorcycle uh license I thought, well, that's quite a big one. Oh, okay. My parents yeah. don't really uh, share that excitement, but <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, but my boyfriend very much does. Um, and so, so that's like, a, you know, one achievement. And then you're just sort of pushing yourself a little bit and seeing that, oh, yeah, actually, I can do that. That's, that's huge. Um, the other question that we often ask is, what's your next big goal? with regards to your research or life or career or anything? Well, I, well, as, as you may have noticed, the pattern is that I don't really have goals. <laughs> I just sort of <laughs> um, see what are the opportunities and, and just take them as they come. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing we currently have going is we've got plans for very ambitious, super cool, uh, large-scale project on linking how genetic variants regulate uh, gene expression and immune cell functions, uh, something that's never been done at this scale. So I'd love to see that uh, mm -hmm. take off and see where it takes us. Um, yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah, it does. Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> As they all are at the beginning, before you start yeah. getting yourself into logistics and, you know, 
but then it gets exciting again yeah. somewhere else down the line right that's true yeah cool. thank you so much for talking to us i appreciate how yeah, busy yeah. you are <laughs> you're like yes i have so much <laughs> now that you reminded me this was great <laughs> oh, sorry yeah, thank you so much that was wonderful Cheers. thanks so much for tuning in to the decoding life podcast we'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks if you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified of the next time we released an episode. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Kanet Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keynes for our beautiful logo. Thank you.